We're about to pray as we do at this point in our service every Sunday, and before we do that, I want to read our passage of Scripture this morning that we will be looking at because in it, our Lord gives us instructions about how to pray. Then we'll pray, then we'll talk about praying. We'll pray some more. It'll be awesome. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15 is our text this morning. Jesus speaking, he says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. And truly, I say to you, they already have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word to us. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we come as a congregation, a church, a family, as has been rightly said already your family assembled and gathered to honor you, to hear from you, to recognize the truth before we say a word of what we just sang, that you are holy and we are not. So we have no business in your presence, but in your grace because of your son and his sacrifice, we can assemble in your presence as your family and acknowledge that you are holy and we are not with joy because your grace has made a way for us to know you. Father, we stand in solidarity with other Christians all around the world and right here in our own community who are coming before you and need to be reminded of your high holiness and your great calling. And so as we think of uh, the Christians far away from us around the world, I want to think especially and pray especially this morning for Christians in the nation of Syria, which has been embattled in a well-publicized civil war for many years now. And while we are grateful that the uh, so-called caliphate that ISIS tried to set up there years ago has largely fallen apart, and that has, uh, from what I've read, created some newfound freedoms and some rebuilding of families and economies there, we are grateful for that. We pray for the Syrian people all over that country to be able to uh, see an end to this war and get some stability and security in their lives. We pray especially for our brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't only have to face the same shortages of, of wartime and the dangers of, of the civil war that all the rest of their fellow countrymen face, but also have to face the persecution that they experience from the largely Muslim majority that is still largely determined to drive Christianity out of that nation. And for those few Christians who still remain, Father, they are vulnerable and isolated. We pray for them this morning that they would get a sense of your high holiness and that you would accomplish great gospel purposes as millions of Muslims in Syria look for truth and look for meaning in life. I pray that they would find it in the cross of Christ. So Father God, empower your people, protect them, and let them live and speak in a way that is uh, true and faithful to the gospel. We pray that you would redeem the lives of millions of Syrians for your namesake and for your glory. 
Father, much closer to home as we stand in solidarity with other churches right in our own town and in our own community. My heart is burdened this morning for our brothers and sisters in Christ at Trinity Church in Portland, uh, knowing that their uh, lead pastor, a fairly well-known and influential person, it has now been made clear, has uh, demonstrated a path of um, long-term uh, deception and cover up a very serious sin that has all finally come to light, and there are many layers there. God, we don't want to be a part of gossip but we hurt for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are assembling for their worship service, I believe, even right now as we speak. And it's, it's a very different feeling inside their worship center than it is in ours this morning. So we pray for that congregation. Pray that you would help them to know what truth and grace look like. And pray, Father God, that there would be no wavering on calling sin, sin. And that people would place their hope not in men as so often happens when a prominent Christian leader proves to be every bit as sinful and even more so than others. But Father, that people would not place their hope in men, but see the truth of the gospel, that you would preserve the weak faith of members of that church if there are any from uh, second-guessing you or doubting you because their leader has let them down. Father God, we pray that you would strengthen that church and for other churches in our association that are coming around them to encourage them, give them wisdom and insight this morning. Lead them to you, and I pray that you would deepen the faith and strength of the people and strengthen that church even more throughout this difficult and tragic circumstance. And Father, that lastly reminds us to pray for ourselves as a church. I want to pray for myself, my fellow elders and ministry staff members. God, you told us in your word to keep watch over our doctrine and our lives, to make sure that what we're teaching is right, but also make sure that we are living it right. And so, Father God, I pray that you would help us as a congregation, as, as a family of God, to keep very short accounts with you and even with one another, that we would speak truth to one another, hold each other accountable, that we would be the kind of people who reflect you in this world, because that's what you've been telling us throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that we represent your kingdom in this world. God, help us to do that excellently, because we cannot do it apart from you. We are fallible sinners, but we come to you knowing that you have chosen to work through us. We pray that you would redeem, pray that you would forgive, pray that you would cleanse, and pray that you would make us a people that accurately reflect who you are to a hurting world around us that needs you so that thousands of people can come to faith in Christ through the local preaching of faithful local churches right here in our community over the next several years. We pray for this because we know it's your will, and so we ask your will to be done. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And I do want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you, to turn um, or tap, whichever they may be, uh, paper or digital, to Matthew chapter 6, if you're not there already. <clears throat> Our continuing look at the Sermon on the Mount, while you're turning there, let me ask you a question um, that I was sort of indirectly confronted with many years ago, and that is, uh, especially if you consider yourself a Christian this morning, um, if someone were to say to you, pray, like just pray, go, just, just take some time and, and just pray, unbounded, no, no end point, just, just pray for as long as you can. And you said, okay, and you started to pray. Uh, how long would your prayer last, do you think? <laughs> how long would you be able to um, think of things to pray intelligently for? 10 minutes? 15? 2? 27 seconds? <laughs> what do you say after, uh, dear God, thank you for this day? 
I was sort of, as I say, indirectly confronted with that question a number of years ago. My wife and I were part of Good Shepherd Community Church over on the east side, as many of you know, and we joined a prayer initiative that had started in that church. A group of people were getting together to get really serious about prayer. And so one of the first things we were told is, using the guidance of a little book that somebody had written on, on prayer, we were going to be equipped to pray for one hour straight. I think I just about fell over. Now, I was not necessarily brand new to the idea of prayer. I had been a Christian for a long time at this point. I was actually in seminary. I was in graduate school studying to be a pastor. It's not like I didn't know how to pray, but I can tell you, I don't think I had ever prayed for 60 minutes straight. Seriously, we're going to do what? I mean, I was just shocked. But as we got into it, this book did, I think the book was called um, The Hour That Changes the World or something like that. It may still be in print if you want to find it. It's very worth reading. There's a lot of other books out there that do much the same kind of thing. This author simply took um, different kind of ways you could pray. at 12 categories. You can pray for this kind of stuff. You can pray for this kind of stuff. Pray for this stuff. It was all pretty normal stuff, easy to understand. I'm like, okay. It's like, so you take a couple of minutes, think about it, put yourself a couple of bullets under each of those categories, specific things you want to pray about, and pray each one for like five minutes. I said, well, I can pray for five minutes, especially if you let me think ahead of time about what I want to pray for. And he's like, well, great. So now I just pray for five minutes 12 times in a row. And it actually, it worked. It was not that difficult. I ended up several times praying for an hour nonstop. And at the end of it, feeling, man, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. But I haven't even begun. There were so many things I skipped over. I couldn't fit it all in an hour. And I'm like, How did I go from thinking, I'm not sure I can keep praying for more than like five minutes, to an hour is not nearly enough? I guarantee you, it wasn't any quantum leap in my personal maturity or my spirituality. It was just the simple fact uh, that I had been given a model of how to pray effectively. And it was pretty simple. It was pretty straightforward. But it really helped guide my thinking and my praying. It sort of blew open my conception of what prayer is and made praying effectively far more doable than I would have thought at first. And I mention that story only because that is exactly the kind of thing I think Jesus is trying to do with his disciples here in Matthew chapter 6 in this passage we're looking at this morning, a passage very familiar to people that have been around the Bible for a while. Uh, We refer to his model prayer here often as the Lord's Prayer. And what he is trying to do is give his disciples a model of what prayer looks like when you are representing the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Uh, several weeks ago, this is for what, by way of reminder for most of us, or if you're newer to us just within the last couple of Sundays, this will kind of catch you up with where we've been. We're about halfway through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the Bible. And we started this whole sermon series by noting that Jesus frames the entire rest of the Sermon on the Mount with three essential principles, and they are here. First, the idea that God's world is invading our world. That was the Beatitudes at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. He is announcing a whole new value system, a whole new kingdom. God's world is upside down compared to ours, and in the person of Christ, God's world is invading our world. That collision is messy because the value systems are different. Secondly, he's telling his disciples... Those of you who are my followers are representatives of my world in this world. That means we live and speak the value system and the truths of God in the midst of a community and in a world that has a very different and sometimes contradictory value system. You are salt and light, Jesus said. You are my representatives in this world. But that is difficult because the collision is messy and because we're still sinful people. (laughs) And so that led us to the third and final and maybe most important point. We need Christ himself to do this. 
Jesus said, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. That is to bring the law to its fully intended purpose. The law was supposed to make the people of God holy and distinct as representatives of God to the nations around them. But when God gave his people a bunch of rules, it couldn't change their hearts and so it never worked. And Jesus says, I've come to finish that job. In other words, I've come to give you the new heart that you need to be the man, the woman of God that I've called you to be so that you can represent him. And then what we've seen is over and over again, he takes these three principles and he simply applies them to this area of life, after this area of life, one after the next, after the next, after the next, to show his disciples, so what does it mean if you live this way? What's that look like? How does that operate? That's the Sermon on the Mount. He's applied it to our personal lives. He's applied it to our marriages. He's applied it to our sense of lust and self-control. He's now applying it in this section of Matthew chapter 6 to our religious worship. We saw him last week apply it to our financial giving. This morning, he applies it to our prayer life. What does it mean to pray as a representative of God's kingdom instead of a representative of this world? That's the question our Lord is seeking to answer this morning. And he does that very simply. Um, We've simply got two parts. He gives us a great example of how not to pray, and then he shows us how to pray. In fact, on how not to pray, we actually see a bad motive for praying. It's really three parts. There's a bad motive. There's also a bad method. He addresses both. And then he shows us a good model. We got a bad motive. We got a bad method. We got a good model of what praying means. That's where we're headed this morning. And so with that in mind, Jesus dive, let's just dive right in. Jesus starts in uh, verse 5 saying to his disciples, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and street corners so that they may be seen by others. He's here addressing the motive. He's addressing their motive. There's a bad motive in your praying, and that motive is when the purpose of my prayer is to enhance how other people think of me. He says, that's the kind of praying you get from spiritual and religious people in this world, oftentimes. That was certainly the case in the first century when he was speaking. So once again, we see Jesus doing what he's done repeatedly, taking obedience from the behavior level, are you praying or not, (laughs) to the heart level. What is the motive? What is driving you? And that's what he's pressing into us as his disciples. He's addressing, once again, the motive. This is the idea of praying just to enhance my reputation, or maybe praying or refusing to pray so that I don't detract from my reputation. Oddly enough, those are actually, there's kind of two ways to go off the rails with our motive here. It's certainly true that even nowadays, it's not that difficult to imagine, and and maybe some of us have even seen a person do this, or maybe we've even been that person, where we're in a group of Christians, and um, we kind of know all the stock Christian phrases, we're pretty well-versed with our praying, we're well-churched, and we're sitting in, you know, maybe a group of a small group Bible study or something, and there's somebody else over there who's really new to the Christian faith, and they haven't learned all the lingo yet, so I could be tempted to pray all the right Christian phrases out loud because it makes me look impressive in the eyes of that other person. We're not immune to these motives any more than people were in the first century. So it's possible to be tempted to pray primarily because it will enhance my reputation. But you know what? There's an equal and an opposite response. It's also possible to be tempted not to pray because I fear it will detract from my reputation. Ever been there? Here I am with a a group of people around the table at Thanksgiving, or maybe I'm in a Bible study group or something, and there's somebody else over there who always sounds so eloquent when they pray. And compared to when I hear them, I listen to myself, and I just sound like a clunky, old, rusty machine. 
And so then it comes like around, I'm like, ooh, I could pray here. And there's that internal part of me that goes, I ain't going to say nothing. Because I don't want to look like an idiot, right? I don't want to stumble and fumble over my words and, and, and look really immature. And so I choose sometimes not to pray because I don't want it to detract from my reputation. I don't want to lose standing in the eyes of other people. They're both the same thing. When, pray, when the motive of praying is my reputation, Jesus says we're off track. So the first um, way not to pray, the, the wrong motive for prayer is praying in order to enhance my own reputation. But secondly, he also addresses a wrong method. Not only a wrong motive of praying, but a wrong method of praying in verses 7 and 8. Referring to some kinds of prayer that were common um, back in first century times. He says, when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as Gentiles, that was non-Jewish people, in other words, members of other religions, often do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. When he says don't heap up empty phrases, the, the honest, the, the most clear and, and, and modern way to say that is don't babble. That's like literally what he says here. He says don't say babble words when you pray. Um, don't just kind of go on and on. Babel words have two forms. It's either a mantra or it's like um, a, a magic spell, right? Mantra is when there are literal syllables that have no meaning at all. <laughs> you just, you're constantly uttering sounds that are devoid of meaning in order to, um, depends on the religion um, and, and how they view it. Like in, in modern Eastern religions, some forms of Buddhism or Hinduism, they will often call prayer um, the, the recitation of these meaningless mantras, which are aids in Eastern meditation to sort of empty your mind and that kind of thing. Jesus says, that's not what prayer is about in the Bible. If you're my disciples, don't confuse prayer with that kind of thing. Don't babble meaninglessly. Uh, the other way is kind of the magic spell, you know, sort of praying. This is the idea that if I learn the right words in the right order and say them the right way, God will honor that prayer and give me what I want. And so my praying becomes kind of repeating certain religious stock phrases that I've heard. They may be words that technically mean something, but I'm sort of repeating them mindlessly. You know, it's just a prayer I pray all the time. Uh, Dear Jesus, thank you for this day. Really? Am I thankful for this day? I mean, if I am, cool. <laughs> but is that just a phrase that comes off the, the, the tip of my tongue just because that's what people say when they pray, you know? Are, are there certain things, you know, to, to say that, like, God's like a vending machine. If you push the right buttons the right way, the right candy bar will come out? That's the kind of praying Jesus is, is sort of saying not to do here. There's a wrong method. God isn't a vending machine. There's not certain words you say in certain orders to get God to do him, uh, to do what you want him to do. I mean, it's really cool if, like, Harry Potter can point a stick and wave it and say just the right word and make a locked door pop open. Good for him. <laughs> This is the real world, and God doesn't work that way. It's not a magic spell, right? If I just say the right things, then God will bless me. And so he's saying here, don't, uh, the wrong method is to use sort of a canned formula kind of prayer. And there's a lot of that praying around. There was in the first century. There still is today. And the important lesson, I think, to take away from this is simply that Christian prayer is not um, an incantation or a mantra, <laughs> It's not a magic spell. It's when incantation is the right words in the right order that produce the right result. Nor is it a mantra. It's not something that we just sort of do and we say things over and over and to God and like the harder we say them and the louder we say them, the more likely God is to hear them or something just because we're so serious about it. 
Actually, Christian prayer is talking to God. He's a real person who doesn't want to be treated like a machine that has buttons that need to be pushed in the right order. He's like, come on. You're talking to a God who knows you and loves you. And by the way, this kind of thing, the reason Jesus is making such a big deal out of all of this in the Sermon on the Mount is because these are the kinds of things that make disciples of Jesus distinctive in the world. That was true in the first century. It is true in the 21st century. If you and I pray this way, the way that Jesus is talking about, as opposed to praying in forms of prayer that you often see amongst spiritual or other religious people around the world today, it says there is a different value system. God is who he is, and he has a certain value system. He is a loving father. He is a real person. He is not a machine. It's not a way of manipulating the universe or God to get you what you want. It's a way of communing with somebody who is alive and real and high and holy and who deeply loves you and I. It's an opportunity to show who God is. So, Jesus has said, here's two ways not to pray. Don't pray with wrong motives, when the motive is primarily about my reputation, and don't pray with the wrong method. Don't pray as kind of a canned formula or an incantation or a recitation. Okay? How then should we pray? What are we supposed to do, Jesus? Glad you asked. What follows in verses 9 through, um, well, really 15, but 9 through 13 in particular is a model prayer that our Lord gives us. And in our kind of overview approach this morning, we're going to look at four aspects, a sort of a four-part model for how Jesus instructs his disciples to pray. He's told us what not to do. What then should we do? And just before we dive in, let me simply highlight the fact that this passage of Scripture and I, I, I want to say this extra strongly because it is so well-known and so familiar to a number of us. This passage of Scripture is a model. It is not a mantra, okay? This is a model. It's not a mantra. There's a huge difference between the two. A mantra, again, is just something that we sort of repeat as, as, as rote words that get memorized and recited without being fully engaged necessarily with my heart and with my mind, Jesus isn't giving us the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, as a mantra. In other words, he doesn't expect us to write this down, commit it to memory, and then repeat these words exactly every single time you pray. Or really, even necessarily, any time you pray. By the way, writing the Bible, words of the Bible down and memorizing them is always a good idea. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. What I'm trying to emphasize here is that Jesus isn't telling us, use these words in this order because that's the key that unlocks the, 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 the door to God power. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, use these magic words in this order because that's what will get God to do what you want him to do. That's not what he's saying. He's not giving us this prayer as necessarily a, a detailed thing to memorize and repeat word for word, even though that's what I did in the church I grew up in in California every single Sunday. Maybe some of you have had similar experience in churches. Uh, we would have a pastoral prayer, and then at the end of that pastoral prayer, the entire congregation, every Sunday, would stand up and recite from memory, word for word, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be in thy name, and on and on we went every single Sunday for years and years and years. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to um, say anything negative about the church I grew up in. I know the pastors there. I knew what their heart was. There was some good that came out of it. I certainly memorized the Lord's Prayer at a very early age just by going to church. It was great. Okay? There was some good to it, but my point is simply that that's not the main thing Jesus is trying to get us to do with this. 
He's not just giving us something to recite and repeat before we go to bed or even in church on a Sunday. We know that because of what he just said in verses 7 to 8. Prayer is not a mantra. So it would be really weird for him to say, don't just repeat meaningless phrases and then give us a bunch of phrases that were to repeat meaninglessly, right? But we also know that that's not the way Jesus intended uh, his disciples to pray because of how Jesus prays himself. One thinks of his prayers, for example, in John chapter 17, the so-called high priestly prayer where he is praying the night before he dies for his disciples and he says none of these words in Matthew chapter 6. We also know that because the Apostle Paul and the other apostles, many of their prayers are recorded in the pages of the New Testament and none of them repeat these words as a mantra or as a formula. But you don't have to look very hard to realize that they are all praying for the same kinds of things Jesus tells us to pray for here. So it's not a mantra, it is a model. It's a way of Jesus saying, here's some things to think about and make sure that you cover in your praying. Here's some places to go in your praying in order to pray the heart of God. And there are four things he gives us. So with that in mind, they are simply this. Pray for God's glory. Pray for, we'll go back through these. Pray for God's um, agenda. Pray for God's provision. And pray for God's forgiveness. Okay, those are the four things. And we'll take each one of them in turn for a minute, a piece. Pray for God's glory. Pray for God's agenda. Pray for God's provision. Pray for God's forgiveness. That's the model our Lord gives us. It starts in verse uh, 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the prayer that God's name would be revered as holy. First of all, in our own hearts, and then also in the hearts and the lives of other people, of all people. Uh, it could probably better, may better read, um, Our Father who are in heaven, may your name be sanctified or hallowed or holy. Those are all three different ways of saying the same thing. It, it's a prayer that God's name would be holy. Now, does that sound a little funny to you at first? <laughs> it probably should. Because like, well, how can you pray for God to be holy? God is holy, Right? <laughs> That's one of the most essential things about him, which is absolutely true. But you see, the, the prayer is not so much that we're praying something for God as if God needs us to pray for him. Like, God, you're pretty good, but you're not quite holy yet, so I'm praying that you'll be holy? No, no, no. God is perfectly holy. What this prayer is about is not about God at all. It's actually about us. May your name be sanctified or set apart or hallowed holy in our hearts and in our lives. God is already holy. The question, the subject of the prayer is whether we as people see that and treat God as the high and holy and perfect God that he really is. This is beginning prayer by starting to think about whom we are praying to before we actually get into what we want to pray about. It's a way of framing everything else that's going to come after the prayer. And starting prayer with a focus on God's worth and power and character reminds us that the point of everything, the point of everything, including whatever it is we're going to pray for, all comes down to one thing, that God's infinite worth would be seen as ultimately beautiful. That's what it means to glorify God. 
He already has infinite worth. But do people see his infinite worth as what it is? The most beautiful thing in the universe. This prayer says, God, would your holiness be made real in my life and in the lives of people around us? Help us to see you rightly and to stand in appropriate awe and reverence and wonder. How do you typically start your prayers when you pray? Do we dive right in? (laughs) That's usually my temptation. Jesus' model is encouraging us as Christians to begin framing prayer by addressing the high holiness of God and praying that we would take it more seriously and so would others. This kind of gets us out of our own heads, so to speak, right from the get-go. And it, it sort of helps ensure that our own limited small experiences aren't defining and limiting our encounters and experiences with God. But rather, our encounters and experiences with God are shaped by His worldwide God-glorifying agenda. Whom are we praying to? How do you do this? How do you do this? There's hundreds and hundreds of possible ways. But I do want to make sure that we're practical this morning, maybe even a little bit more so than normal. So I, I want to warn you that from here on out, we're going to be a little more interactive than we are normally. It's going to be kind of crazy. I know we're like a conservative Baptist church, but we're going to get through it. It's going to be awesome. We're going to do a little bit of spiritual calisthenics here this morning, okay? Uh, I'm not going to put anybody in this spot or make you feel weird, but I actually want us to, at a couple points in the sermon, we're going to pause and we're going to do an example of what Jesus is teaching here, just so we can see one way that it can work, okay? You with me? If you're not, just keep it to yourself and play along. Okay, no, this is going to be fine. I want us for a moment to like experience together what it might mean to start prayer focusing on the high holiness of God. Uh, Hundreds of ways you can do that, but one that I'm going to start suggesting is that the Bible itself is a phenomenal resource at this point. So many passages of scripture exalt the high holiness of God, and it does not take very much creativity to take one of those passages, rearrange a couple words, and make it into a prayer. I've done that this morning with Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, a great little paragraph exalting um, the holiness of Jesus Christ as the God-man. And so what I'd like to do, I'm going to put those words up on the screen as a prayer. I would like to ask you to stand. If you would indulge me, let's stand together. And I want to encourage all of our members to join in with this. Now, if you don't believe these words, you don't need to feel compelled to say them. Uh, Just respectfully listen, that's fine. But I want to encourage you to pray this together. Let's pray a God-exalting prayer together as his people. This is how you can start your prayer life. So pray with me, if you would. Jesus, you are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by you, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through you and for you. And you are before all things And in you, all things hold together. And you are the head of the body, the church. You are the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything you might be preeminent. For in you, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through you, God reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of your cross. Amen? Now, what did I have to talk to Jesus about? (laughs) 
that's right. Who are we addressing? You can have a seat. Thank you. Beginning prayer by remembering the high holiness of the one to whom we are uh, speaking, using worship songs, using poetry, using your own experiences, using scripture. There's a lot of ways to get our minds focused on who he is. So start by exalting God's glory. Secondly, we pray not only for God's glory, but for God's agenda. We pray for God's agenda, verse 10. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What Jesus is saying there is pretty straightforward, not difficult to understand. He's praying that God's agenda would be accomplished on this planet because it's not right now. You don't have to look around very far to recognize that that's the truth, right? I don't have to look beyond the newspaper headlines or even my own heart to see that we are a race in rebellion against God. We live for ourselves, not for him. God is uh, bringing about the establishment of his kingdom in this world and the disciple prays for that, that, that this earth would be brought into submission to God and that everything would be done God's way on earth just as it is in heaven where everything is perfect. This also recognizes that, you know, the main agenda in praying actually isn't mine. Whatever it is I came to God thinking that I wanted to pray for. Those are important things. We'll get to them in just a moment. But this this aspect of prayer reminds us that my agenda isn't the main agenda. God's agenda is always the main agenda, so we pray for it. We pray for God's agenda to be accomplished. It reminds me that, that... I need to be pulled out of myself, that, that my view of things, my experience of things is often very narrow and very limited. Even where my experiences are legitimate, they are never the whole story, but God sees the whole story. So yes, I want to bring my concerns, my thoughts, my feelings on behalf of myself and those that I love to God, but I bring them to God in the context of his larger kingdom purposes because every little detail of my life and the lives of those I care about None of it is lost on God, and all of it he is using to go somewhere. I don't always know where the somewhere is, but he does. This aspect of praying aligns our hearts and our minds with the fact that God has an agenda. So how would that potentially look? Well, again, hundreds of ways. Here's just a couple of examples to kind of get us thinking about what it might look like to pray God's agenda in a specific set of prayer requests. If I were to pray God's agenda... I might go ahead and pray that my, say, unemployed family member would find a job. It's a very good thing to pray for. I'll probably go ahead and pray for it. And I might also pray that they will come to depend on Christ more than money, more fully than ever before during the period of unemployment in a way that will maybe even change how they relate to God and their money when they do find another job. You see, Jesus told us you cannot serve both God and money. You can't serve two masters. And we live in an affluent, um, suburban, uh, middle to upper middle class community. That doesn't mean we all have lots of money, but it does mean that as Americans, especially in the community in which we live, we're used to steady paychecks and nice vacations and the ability to go get stuff done. It's very difficult not to feel the battle of finding my security in my paycheck than in my God, and that's true for all of us. And so maybe when I see somebody without a paycheck, I say, God, is this an opportunity for you to accomplish your purposes in them? Another example. If I'm to pray God's agenda, I might pray for um, a dear friend who just received a horrible diagnosis, say cancer or something. I might pray for them to be healed. 
from that terrible disease. It's a great thing to pray for. And I might also pray that the fleeting brevity of life would come home to them. And actually, not just them, but all of us who know them and care about them in a new and fresh way that jolts us out of our peaceful slumber where we just go through life kept quietly tamed by the evil one with all of our stuff and all of our American lifestyles and out of the game. Psalm 90 says, God, teach us to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom. Life is very brief. The opportunities I have to serve Christ is a very small window, and I will be honest with you, I don't think about that most of the time. But when a huge tragedy strikes and somebody's life looks shorter than I think it should be or it might be, maybe that's an opportunity to pray that God would bring home to them and to me that life is precious and it is short and the opportunities to serve Christ are not here forever. Let's redeem the time. God, accomplish your agenda. One more. If I were to pray God's agenda, I might pray that that grieving member of my church who just went through a tragedy, maybe they lost a loved one or some other significant tragedy, and they're grieving, I might pray for them to be comforted in that time and strengthened. It's a good prayer. We should pray for that. And I might also pray that God would do such a work in their life that their ultimate hope, their sense of deep and abiding security would rest completely on our real and future home, not in perfect circumstances in this world I might pray that they would be able to look fully, as we are instructed in 2 Corinthians 4, to look at what is not, not look at what is seen, the stuff of this world, because it's temporary, but to look at and rest our hope on what is unseen, the things of the next world, because that is what's eternal. So yes, I'll, I'll pray for comfort, uh, but I will also pray for God's will to be accomplished in their lives. I bring these up only because like these, these three simple, quick examples, they're all unquestionably part of God's agenda. God is, is very open about his agenda. He's told us exactly the kinds of things he's trying to accomplish in all of our lives. He wants us to rely on him and not money. You cannot serve two masters. He wants us to number our days and understand that life is fleeting and redeem the time and live on purpose and with intentionality for him. And he wants us to fix our hope on our eternal home in heaven. It's one of the most constant recurrent themes in the entire Bible, not in the finding comfort in this life. We know that that's God's agenda. Praying thy kingdom come and thy will be done is a way of recognizing, it's a way of teaching us to think how every event in life, the good ones and the bad ones, can be a tool in God's hand to accomplish his glorious purposes in the lives of people whom he desperately loves. But it's not our default to see that, is it? It's not mine. I see somebody hurting, I want to pray that they stop hurting. (laughs) I have something bad happen, I want to pray that it would get well. Again, that's not all bad, but my default is not to reach for God's agenda. It's to reach for my agenda, where I and those I love are happy and secure and healthy and wonderful, and God says, I know, that's why I died. That's heaven. But for now, you're on a mission. So I need a new heart. I need Jesus to help me pray this way, not just to recite the words, but from the heart to desperately reach for his agenda and to fulfill the law by making me the kind of man who prays this way. Well, 
We need to move on. Regarding these first two elements, praying for God's um, glory and God's agenda, one Bible scholar, Craig Blomberg, puts it this way. He says, the first half of the Lord's Prayer thus focuses exclusively on God and His agenda as believers adore Him, worship Him, and submit to His will before introducing their personal petitions. That's a good summary. But God does want to hear from His people. So in the third uh, aspect, the third um, facet of this model we pray for God's provision. We pray for his provision. We pray that God would give us what we need. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread or give us tonight tomorrow's bread, however you want to read it. It's the same idea. The basic idea is this recognition that everything we need to survive from just physical food and shelter all the way up to um, thriving emotionally and spiritually and physically and relationally, all of this comes from God. We are dependent on him for everything and so is everybody we love and care about and so it is good and right to look to the provider to provide for us and to pray that he would provide for us what we need. He delights to sustain this world and give good, good gifts to his children. And it is very right to bring our requests and our needs on behalf of ourselves and others to him to look to the provider. The only thing I want to mention here in particular is the exhortation to, as a church, be willing to pray out loud about all of this stuff and certainly about these kinds of requests with other people as we bring our requests to him. Now, why do I say that? Um, Notice that in this Lord's Prayer, If you've got your Bibles, look down at the text again. There are a lot of first-person pronouns. And if you forgot all your sentence diagramming from school, (laughs) that's just the I's and the U's and the he's and the she's, right? All of the first-person pronouns are plural. All of them. Verse 9, our Father, not my Father, our Father. Verse 11, give us this day, not me this day, our daily bread, not my daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil over and over again. Every single time Jesus is addressing his disciples, he's addressing them as a group and he's teaching them to pray as a group. He's not saying, so guys, when you go pray off by yourselves, this is what you do. Like he's teaching them as a group about what they do individually. That's actually not what he's saying. He's saying, when you're disciples, you pray together according to this fourfold model. Prayer is not just a private conversation between a Christian and God. Although it is that, uh, there are certainly times Jesus went off to pray alone, and uh, earlier in, we saw in chapter 6 where he says, you know, go into your closet and pray silently between you and God. There's a very individual place for prayer. But the, the lesson I think that we in the individualistic Pacific Northwest of 21st century America probably need to take home the most is that prayer is also a corporate and together thing. That's why I had us pray together a moment ago. And we'll do that one more time in just a minute. Prayer is a a collective thing. It's something we do together as a church. We pray for the church and our church's role in God's agenda. And so I just want to encourage us to pray. Pray in small groups. When you're in Bible study groups or, or community life groups, like pray out loud together. Make time for that. When you meet people for coffee and you're having an accountability group or you study uh, a book together or you're just catching up on life, take a few minutes and pray together with your friends. Uh, that's why we pray in our worship services every Sunday. We have a pastoral prayer time set aside. We follow a model um, in general. Some of you are very familiar with it. We pray for the spread of the gospel around the world. We pray for God's work in our own nation and in community. We pray for other churches, and we pray for our church. 
Um, now, we flex that model and we abandon it at times on certain Sundays um, because we don't want our model to become a mantra. But it's just a way of helping us together to all think about the kinds of things as a church we should care about and beseech God on behalf of. Pray as families, pray with your friends. One of the challenging things about praying with other people is that prayer really reveals what's on our own hearts and minds, doesn't it? For years, it used to be very difficult in our early years of marriage for me to pray with my wife, Amy, and I never really understood why. I didn't figure it out until much, much later. It's a lot easier for me by God's grace now. Um, and I think ultimately the reason is, is really just it's pride, it's ego. Like, I didn't want to sit there before my wife and feel like I should be praying better. I wasn't thinking this at the time, but that's what was really going on. Feeling like I should be praying better, and I really didn't have that much to say, or not as much as I thought I should have to say. So I was already messing up on Jesus' earlier instruction, right? (laughs) What was my motive in praying, or in that case, not praying? It was about my reputation. You see, prayer really does kind of reveal what we think and, and, and what we feel. And if we know that, man, I'm not really a very mature Christian, I don't want to like hang my stuff out there to dry. That's why Jesus addressed the motives in the first place. And then he tells his men, his disciples in that first century context, pray together. That's his message for all of us as his sons and daughters. Because while on the one hand, prayer can be a challenging thing, it's also a powerful tool that God can use for our own sanctification. So if you find yourself always unwilling to pray with family members or friends or, or people that you know well in the church, let me urge you to consider repenting of whatever self-righteous pride may be behind that, or maybe it's just something else. I don't know. But ask God why that's the case. If prayer is supposed to be a together thing and I find myself never wanting to participate in it, but I'm a Christian and I'm a member of this church, that's something to talk to the Lord about. Because prayer can also become a wonderful tool for your own sanctification. So my encouragement is just, man, dive in. Um, Blunder about, stammer, stutter, who cares? We're all friends here. I've been in some groups of people that they prayed and I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, that was awful. And I don't care. And I'm so glad they didn't care. Because how did I look the first time I tried to take a step? I wobbled and bobbled and fell on my butt and my family was delighted because you see somebody just getting used to walking. You celebrate it. You don't berate them. Come on, kid, you're 18 months. You can't walk yet? Like, who says that, right? Let's be the church that just likes to, that just revels in dropping the pretense and diving in together and learning to pray together. Bring our request to him. Lastly, we pray for God's um, glory we pray for his agenda we pray for his provision we finally pray for his forgiveness verse 12 forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil or from the evil one it's a a prayer that god would forgive the sins we've already committed and then help keep us holy and righteous in the future not giving into temptation and committing future sins Now, this is not um, a conditional salvation kind of thing. He goes on and he says, um, if you don't forgive somebody else, God's not going to forgive you. But if you forgive somebody else, God will forgive you. And if you wrench that statement out of context, it almost sounds like the Bible is teaching you can earn your salvation or lose your salvation or whatever. That's not really what's in view here at all. Rather, what Jesus is saying pretty clearly within the context is don't just utter the words of some prayer, you know, mantra-like. Lord, I know I committed a sin. Please forgive me. I'll try not to do it again. Amen. You know, when your heart is not really genuinely broken over sin. 
The person who asks God for forgiveness but refuses to forgive other people who have sinned against them is showing that their heart is proud and arrogant because they've been sinned against. And so now it's easy for me to say, I can, I can be the victim mentality. I'm superior to you and my heart becomes hard. And that might inoculate me. I'm no longer humbled and broken by my own sin. So he's simply telling us, confess your own sin from a place of humility. Confess your sins from a place of humility. And and forgiving other people when they've sinned against us, especially egregiously, is a complex and messy process that Jesus doesn't dive into here, and we don't have the time to either because we're about to wrap up. I just, I want to say that um, without making it sound like forgiving somebody should just be easy. It's it's often not a one-time thing, especially where hurts run really deep. It's messy, and it's convoluted, and it's complicated, and it often has to be done over and over and over again. There's a place to talk about that. But what our Lord is simply saying here is, don't let your own life, don't be a hypocrite, right? Don't let your own pleas to God for forgiveness. God, please forgive me. When you're not willing to forgive anybody else, you're really showing that your heart isn't in forgiveness at all. So confess um, sins, he says, from a place of humility. Ask for God's forgiveness and confess them together confess them together. There's a place to pray for God's forgiveness of sins individually and privately, and there's a place to pray together corporately. Um, so I want us to turn the corner and, and, and head toward the finish line here by, by praying one more time together. Um, this is a prayer that is based on Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24, a well-known passage of Scripture describing the fruit of the Spirit or the results of the Spirit in our lives. And so we're praying for that fruit as a way of confessing our sins, using that passage as a guide. These are the kinds of things you can do to use Scripture to help you pray. So once again, you can stay seated this time, but I want to ask you to join me if this reflects the heart of what you really believe. And we're going to pray this prayer of corporate confession together as a church. And if this is where your heart is at, join me, not only with your words, but with your heart as we ask for God's forgiveness and pray for his good in our lives. Pray with me. God, we admit that when we're in control, it leads us to sin. Spirit of God, fill us so that the results of your presence characterize our lives. Where we're callous toward others, give us your love. Where we're consumed with grief, give us your joy. Where we're discontent with life, give us your peace. Where we're judgmental toward others, give us your patience. Where we're unmoved by the needs of others, give us your kindness. Where our intentions are evil, give us your goodness. Where our commitment ends, give us your faithfulness. Where we're overly harsh with others, give us your gentleness. Where we're slaves to our desires, give us your self-control, all so that we will be faithful and true representatives of your kingdom in this world, that you may be glorified in all things. Amen? The power of a church praying God's will together is something that he will use to change us. I want to invite the worship team to come back up and lead us as we continue to worship God in song, as we have by listening to his word and in prayer. And as they come up, let me just conclude by saying this. Prayer is an essential part of living as God's representatives in this world, but we can do it 
in a worldly way, we can do it in a Christ-honoring way. Our Lord is giving us a model, not a mantra, but a model of how to pray for his glory, pray for his agenda, pray for his provision, and pray for his forgiveness. Let's put these things into practice as we pray in a way that reflects our God and the gospel. And let's pray to that end and sing to that end. Would you stand with us, please, as we worship our God in song?